Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I am a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Jason Israelovitz, who is an attorney and an author. Uh, a, a, an interesting mix for us, but a perfect mix for the book that he has written, which is called Nothing to Fear, Alfred Hitchcock and the Wrong Men. It is an absolutely fascinating look at the history of several miscarriages of justice and how they have inspired Alfred Hitchcock in his famous movie The Wrong Man starring Henry Fonda and it is I say it's a famous movie but in some senses it's a little bit of an overlooked movie in Hitchcock's oeuvre a little bit unfairly I would argue and Jason has written a book which will have you looking at it anew uh, it certainly sent me back for a rewatch so um before uh, you listen to the conversation, I just have to ask you to follow me on social media um, at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. You can find me across Instagram, threads, and Twitter on that um, handle. You uh, can like and subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy the episode. You can also um, review it uh, and give it some visibility. That would be really good. Um, and in the next few weeks, uh, we've got some really big guests coming up, really exciting 
uh, writers who um, I'm kind of ticking off the legends that I want to get on the the, the podcast um, before I collapse <laughs> in, in exhaustion after all the film festivals I've been going to. Uh, uh, yeah, poor me. I, I know. I know exactly. You you don't have any sympathy, and quite rightly so. Before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. was really the movie um i i've been a cinephile since i was pretty young and uh perhaps have some element of the 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 wannabe film critic in me i always thought that would be one of the great professions but uh for for a variety of reasons i wound up going into the law but um i have been particularly interested in hitchcock the intersection of sort of hitchcock's drama and suspense and you know entertainment pieces with uh, his treatment of legal issues. That's always been a topic that I found fascinating. And in fact, when I was younger, um, I did have some um, ambitions, perhaps, of one day writing a book dealing with that theme somewhat comprehensively, you know, Hitchcock and the law. Um, but I was an associate at a law firm at the time, and the schedule was pretty unforgiving. So I had to sort of mm. scale back my ambitions and wound up uh, writing a, a, a law journal piece on Rear Window and sort of some of the themes in Rear Window that deal with the um, competing values that underlie the, the Fourth Amendment and, and sort of search and seizure and crime control and, and those sorts of ideas. Um, but I always sort of wanted to return to Hitchcock um, and uh, writing about him and analyzing him. And, uh, you know, it was about five years ago, I saw the wrong man for the first time in many years. And I was really, you know, blown away by how, good it is, but also uh, how timely it is for a movie that was made in 1956 and how it really gets at a lot of the issues that the criminal justice system has been struggling with really uh, ever since the movie came out. So that was sort of the immediate inspiration, which was, you know, sort of investigate both the history of the movie and then the true case that it depicts, which itself, as we can talk about, I think is an incredibly resonant story of, of of an innocent family that was nearly destroyed by a, a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, I, I, I'm really interested that, and now I really want to read the book you, you're, you're going to write about the Paradigm case and, and all the other yeah. uh, legal legal centric movies that uh, that, that Hitchcock has, has done. Um, Witness for the prosecution, and I, I confess, and there's a, there's a whole there's a whole raft of them that you, which you mention in, in the book. Um, but I, but the point that you make uh, about Hitchcock is one of his pervasive fears was a fear of the police, and that is expressed almost the most explicitly. I mean, you see it in Psycho when, you know, the, the motorcycle cop is almost like a Terminator 2 Robert Blake cop before, you know, avant, uh, you know, the the fact. Uh, and, and with this, but with this film, The Wrong Man, it, it's absolutely about where the basis of that fear is coming from, that, that an innocent man can just be railroaded. That's right. And, you know, Hitchcock talked a lot about in interviews about his lifelong fear of the police I'm sure you've probably heard the anecdote about him being sent to the local police station and when he was four or five years old by his father with a note. And, you know, the the story is Hitchcock recounts it as the chief reads the note and then puts Hitchcock in a cell for at least a few minutes. Uh, then he lets him out and he says to Hitchcock, this is what we do to naughty little boys. 
And, you know, Hitchcock talked about many times talked about how that experience sort of scarred him and implanted in him this lifelong dread of the police. And, you know, I remember reading his being interviewed about it. He talked about how it was the, you know, the clang of the door that was this potent thing and the sound and the solidity of the closing of that door and the, the bolt. Um, and uh, he he did return to the idea that, you know, to, to the terror of an innocent person being incarcerated. I mean, Hitchcock would say that he had no idea what his transgression was, you know, for why he was put in there, but that it did give him this um, dread. And, you know, it's interesting if you look at a lot of the films before The Wrong Man, it, this theme of, of false accusation and the power of the state to incarcerate kept recurring. Even in some of the lighter movies, there was sort of this undercurrent of sort of this sinister association with the police and a real skepticism, I think, of legal institutions and the ability of judges and juries to, to get to the truth. And so, you know, by when when this project uh, of The Wrong Man is presented to him by Warner Brothers in 1956, it really tapped into these themes that he had been dealing with for his entire career. And now he could really you know, hone in on them that much more because it was a true story. And that and that feels to me like a departure for Hitchcock, but I'm I'm I might be wrong about this and by all means correct me. That he's going, you know, he's 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 using a, a, a true story and he's kind of uh, using it quite closely compared to how he oh, you know with certain divergences, but compared to to you know how he would do more genre based things like John Buchan novel with 39 steps and and even making remakes of his own films and what have you. Was was that association with a true story a relatively rare thing in in his filmography yeah i think it's really a one of a kind for him i mean you know you could go back to rope and say that rope was sort of loosely based on the leopold and loeb case but it was really i think its direct source was a, a fictionalized you know version of that a play that had been staged but yeah this was um a, a, a story that really spoke to hitchcock's sort of lifelong obsessions not only the uh, story of the, the the innocent person being falsely accused, but also the fact that um, in this case, that person's wife um, had a, a mental breakdown, which sort of then pulls in Hitchcock's recurring theme of, you know, sort of female protagonists and psychological duress. And uh, in fact, there was a uh, the critic guy, um, Philip French talked about how this was kind of an intriguing case of life imitating Hitchcock's art because it brought together these two strands of his filmography. Um, so, yeah, Hitchcock was very uh, captivated by this idea of finding a true story that had all these dramatic elements and that, you know, it's pretty clear if you look at the, uh, you know, the archival history of the movie and his correspondence with his his screenwriters on the project and his associate producer he really wanted to present this story without the the embellishments that had accompanied his many other, you know, wrong man um, or wrong woman films. Uh, and I think it's because, in part, because he found the story itself so compelling. You know, this this story of a of a, a of a nightclub musician who had never been in trouble in his life suddenly seeing his entire life upended by this false accusation and, and then the, the tragic consequences on his wife. So I think Hitchcock recognized there was this inherent drama and, and really an inherent terror in the story he was telling. 
So he didn't really need to fall back on what you know we all think of as the Hitchcock trademarks, you know, this the chases, the set pieces. And things of that sort. Yeah, you made that point quite early on. I, I remember that this is isn't a Hitchcockian film as such, in the sense that, as you say, those those uh, that the idea of tension being built and all the rest of it isn't isn't added to the story. It's just coming from the story. Um, and let's talk about that story. Let's talk about that real story. I, I mean, first off, what what was really interesting is you didn't jump straight into the story of uh, Manny, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, so you have to help me out, Manny. Yeah, Balestrero is the way it's pronounced. Balestrero. Yeah. Okay, I should get that right because it's, a, an, Ital- <laughs> it's an Italian name. So uh, Manny Balestrero. So he doesn't just jump straight. You don't just jump straight into that. You you give sort of case studies of about uh, five or six other cases of misidentification, which which is a really valuable context because it makes this, this isn't just sort of some sort of headline grabbing unusual thing. This is a, a evidence of a systemic problem in law enforcement, right? That's right. There really had been a series of mistaken identity cases um, in the 10 to 15 years leading up to this one where they, they really called into question some of the basic premises of the legal system that were in place in the United States at the time. And one of those premises was a, a sense that eyewitnesses were infallible, that you know if the police had an eyewitness or multiple eyewitnesses come forward and accuse a defendant of, of a criminal act, that created such a presumption of guilt that you, know, you just didn't see uh, uh, strong efforts at corroboration necessarily, or uh, the police sort of doing their own independent investigation to confirm the reliability of those eyewitness identifications. And again, there was a sense of, you know, an exalting of, of, of eyewitness testimony is really sort of seen as the gold standard. And so, yes, there were a series of cases, and I focus in the book on cases in New York that had come to light, including one of a, there's a famous case of a stockbroker named Bertram Campbell, who was, uh, you know, had no criminal record whatsoever. He was misidentified by five eyewitnesses as the front man for a forgery gang and wound up going to, to prison for three and a half years. Later, he was exonerated. And, um, you know, even though there were a number of these um, wrongful convictions that came to light at the time, the legal system was still largely in a state of denial about that issue. Um, That when, you know, the the cases got reported, the narrative that was spun out by the authorities was this was a tragedy, but a tragedy sort of beyond our control. That, you know, just this, there were these extraordinary circumstances where the defendant looked unbelievably like the actual culprit, that they were doubles or twins, and that this was um, a horrific uh, tragedy brought on by sort of sincere eyewitness error. So there were the systemic problems you were talking about in terms of the police not, you know, scrutinizing eyewitness testimony, not using sufficiently safe procedures to elicit those identifications. But rather than see these cases as opportunities to examine the systemic problems, they were sort of swept under the rug. And and that left in place sort of the conditions that, um, you know, Manny Balestrero and his family got caught up in, 
you know, in 1953. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, the, by the, the the procedures that you're talking about, you line up it being organized with the with the the accused person being told to wear the clothes of the. You know, I mean, it's it's literally well, anybody's going to look a bit like the person who's done a crime if you have to wear the same green sunglasses that the person was wearing who committed the crime. You know, exactly. I mean, the suspects were routinely put in in incriminating uh, positions like that. And then on top of that, you know, there weren't really uh, strong efforts to fill out the lineup with people of similar appearance. Uh, you know, one of the common practices of the day was that the police would put other police officers in the lineup, in some cases with their uniform trousers showing. So the defendant would sort of, or the suspect would sort of stick out as a sore thumb. So yeah, you had the sort of the double problem in the, uh, um, at the time, which was that you know, you had eyewitnesses being deferred to to uh, an extraordinary degree. And then you had the police using these procedures that weren't really designed to test uh, the reliability of their identifications. They were more to kind of check a procedural box and and uh, get a rubber stamp put on the identification. Yeah, we've got the we've got the guilty guy. We just need to put them away and we're not going to test any of those assumptions or any of those. Uh, right. We're, just, we're building a case as uh, a, I, one of the line lineups included the witness's husband. I remember was a particularly egregious right. example well, of that. That that is and that's Manny's case, Manny Balsera's case. Uh, right. The chief eyewitness, one of the chief eyewitnesses against him was so uh, uh, scared about the whole process of giving an identification that, you know, she insisted that her husband come down to the station with her. And so, again, often the case, the police were sort of short on being able to fill out the lineup. Uh, so what they did was they thought, oh, well, this person's here. It doesn't matter that it's the husband of the eyewitness. We'll just put that person in the lineup. And as you say, I mean, that that really adds an element of farce. Mm. to this type of procedure because you know the idea that the eyewitness is looking at a lineup with her husband in it is is farcical it seems weird that there wouldn't be some sort of sense in within law enforcement of you know how can i sleep at night knowing i put an innocent man in jail but yet even after these cases have come to light after the people have been exonerated they find it very difficult to get any form of meaningful compensation from the authorities and certainly very little by way of an apology or uh, an idea of reform that's right i think the the bottom line was was there was not a reckoning by the criminal justice system at multiple levels. Uh, prosecutors who had brought these cases that were later shown to be wrongful, uh, wrongfully prosecuted, you know, there was not a willingness on their part to go back and unpack the causes to, 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 to look back at the actions they had undertaken to see you know, what went wrong here. Instead, it was more a question of just pointing the finger at the eyewitnesses and saying, look, this sort of comes with the territory. Um, eyewitnesses are still the best way, you know, we, we're, we're the best sort of sources of evidence for us, and we're, we'll live with their imperfections. It really wasn't until the modern innocence movement, which would be, you know, when it really took hold in the 90s and has become more and more prevalent over the last few decades, that there was finally a recognition that, hey, th these aren't these extraordinary one-off coincidences here. These are systemic problems with the criminal justice system that need to be analyzed, that need to be rectified uh, in order to put protections in place to try to reduce the chance of this happening again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it should be hard to put someone in jail. It shouldn't be easy. You should have to prove it to, to uh, you know, a great extent.
uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, indeed, to quote to quote a phrase. Right. <laughs> um, so let's get to let's get to Manny's case. And what what are the the details that behind this this particular story? Yeah. So Manny Balistrero was a musician at a famous uh, nightclub in Manhattan called the Stork Club, which was. Um, you know, I was only vaguely familiar with it uh, when I undertook to write this book. And it's that's sort of a fascinating story in and of itself. It was really the epicenter of glitz and glamour in Manhattan at the time, uh, frequented by many different celebrities, including Hitchcock himself, before mm. he came to, you know, tell Manny's story. And, uh, you know, Manny was a a, a pretty uh, uh, modest family man. He lived in Jackson Heights, Queens. He would take the train to commute into Manhattan every night. He had uh, a wife, Rose, that at the time of these events, he had been married to for about 20 years. He had two kids. And um, as his wife would later observe, you know, Manny is sort of the last person you would ever associate with potential criminality. You know, Rose, he, he, he was known as sort of this gentle soul. He was very non-confrontational. He was a devout Catholic. You know, Rose would say that he was the personality type where he would, you know, walk five blocks out of his way just to avoid an argument. But he got caught up in um, a criminal investigation in early 1953, what had happened was there was a two blocks from his house, there was a prudential insurance office. And uh, that office had been held up twice in 1952, in, in, in uh, July 52 and December 52, each time by the same man who came in, uh, demanded the money from the cash drawer, you know, the uh, the, uh, took about $200 total from the cashier and then, you know, fled into the crowd surrounding the, the office. And, you know, the police had never really developed any leads other than they had concluded that this same person, whoever it was, was responsible for a series of neighborhood robberies of liquor stores and, you know, drug stores and grocery stores and, and, and the like. Well, Manny at the time, um, was having a uh, financial difficulty. His wife, Rose, had experienced some dental problems and the work was gonna cost about $325 and the Ballesteros you know, didn't have the money to pay for it. So that brings Manny into the uh, Prudential Insurance Office in January, 1953, where he goes to seek a loan against his wife's insurance policy so they can pay for the dental work. And it was during that visit to the insurance office that one of the uh, the, the woman uh, who was waiting on him um, comes to the conclusion that he's the same man who held up the office on these two prior occasions. She then sort of spreads that belief to other employees in the office, and they all come to this rather instantaneous conclusion that Manny is the holdup man. And, and so, um, you know, as soon as Manny leaves the office that day, they contact the police and that sets in motion, you know, the wheels of the criminal justice system against Manny. And, um, you know, the police come calling at his home the next night. And there's really no other evidence except for this. These witnesses. Uh, there's no, you know, they don't find a weapon. They don't find there's there, there's nothing in his background. You know, that he's not spending money in some crazy way or anything. Nothing else points at him except for this accusation. Uh, that's correct. Really, the case rested entirely on the eyewitness identifications. Now, the police would tell you if you would interview him at the time, there was one other what they referred to as evidence which is that when Manny was down at the station being interrogated, he was asked to provide a handwriting sample. Uh, and the reason for that was that during the one of the holdups, 
the holdup man passed a note to the cashier demanding the money in the cash drawer. And um, that note was left at the, at the crime scene. So the police had that. So they wanted Manny to replicate the holdup note so that they could compare, you know, the handwriting. And so while Manny is down at the station being interrogated, they ask him to write that note five times. You know, they keep dictating the note over and over again. The last time Manny writes the note, he makes a spelling mistake. He drops the ER from the word drawer mm. when he's referring to the cash drawer. It turns out that was the same spelling mistake that the culprit had made. So even though it would later be established that there really was not a convincing similarity between the handwriting samples, the police seize on this error and say, oh, you know, this proves this is further evidence because, you know, you made the same spelling mistake, which really is entirely illogical because Manny, every other time he wrote the note, he spelled the word correctly. So Manny knew how to spell the word drawer, but, you know, he'd been there. This is probably the middle of the night at this point. He'd been there for hours and, you know, he just made a slip in the last version. And uh, and yet I think it's an example of um, something you alluded to earlier, which is, you know, the police weren't really doing a sort of an objective investigation at this point. They were just looking for anything that would fit their preconceived um, uh, notion that, you know, because of the eyewitness accusations that Manny was the guilty party. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, and it's it's interesting how that handwriting you, know, you refer to it a little bit as the DNA of the time that it's uh, another form of apparently objective but it, uh, evidence but a, a little bit like we're we're kind of learning slightly with some DNA usage it can also be um it, it can also be manipulated or used in such a way as to not uh, to not be quite the slam dunk it originally appears. And the tr- trial uh I, I i don't want to go too into it because i think the the way you describe the trials and everything it's kind of worth reading it and enjoying it as as a courtroom thriller in itself your book is about a courtroom thriller but is it becomes a courtroom thriller you know lots of lots of little details hinge on like the behavior of the jury and uh, uh and stuff like that which was which was fascinating to see re uh re um oh, what's the word apologies brought brought to life let's say that's right the, the the trial had took some interesting turns and uh again i think this is an example of one of the other reasons that story appealed hitchcock because ultimately you know the case ends in a mistrial and it's the mistrial occurs because one of the jurors just gets bored and frustrated and decides that you know he doesn't want to listen to any more of cross-examination from manny's defense counsel and you know he stands up and makes the statement you know your honor do we have to sit here and listen to all this and you know that brought on a mistrial because it suggested that um, the, the juror had a preconceived notion that Manny was guilty and that he wasn't willing to, to be impartial and listen to all the evidence. And again, I think that element too appealed to Hitchcock because if you look at some of his earlier films, you know, he clearly was very skeptical about juries and the jury process. And, you know, you, you, you alluded to I Confess, the Montgomery Clifford movie, um, which, I, which I think is a very uh, a fascinating entry in Hitchcock's filmography as well. And there's a, you know, a big courtroom sequence in that film. And, uh, you know, um, without wanting to spoil it, let's just say that I think Hitchcock presents the jury in a pretty unflattering light. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, and, and he had done so in, in earlier films as well. So, 
again, yet another element of, you know, the true story that taps into these themes that Hitchcock had been kind of grappling with in his work throughout its career. So when we come down to the actual, the making of the film and the um, uh, and Hitchcock turning this into a, into a Hollywood Hollywood version, as you, uh, as you might like, like, as you might have it. I mean, the first thing, this always, uh, the wrong manner always strikes me as a Hitchcock's real noir. It, it has a real sort of atmosphere. It's New York. It's about a man trapped. But the other thing that's really interesting is, is you have Henry Fonda, who, as you say, is a star who comes to the film with Tom Joad from Grapes of Wrath with a reputation himself. He's already made a whole bunch of films. That's right. I mean, uh, Fonda and Hitchcock can never work together until this film. Uh, I I know that uh, Hitchcock had been trying to get him for Saboteur, actually, Mm -hmm. many years ago, but uh, Fonda was under contract and, and wasn't available. But I think there's no doubt that when Hitchcock got around to casting for The Wrong Man, Henry Fonda was just a natural choice. Um, I mean, you alluded to his role in The Grapes of Wrath, which was one of a series of, of these, you know, great social justice movies that Fonda had starred in. Uh, you know, he had played uh, sort of the innocent man falsely accused in, in several different films. You know, there was a movie called uh, Let Us Live and You Only Live Once. He had played, you know, young Abe Lincoln defending innocent men accused of, of murder. And then, uh, you know, the Oxbow incident was another uh, the story of mob justice. So I, I think there was this sense that Fonda was a natural choice and, and also that Fonda, you know, projected this basic decency and is someone that, you know, you, you know, as soon as the audience would see him in a film, there'd be a natural audience identification. And that was important to Hitchcock as well, because one of the animating ideas behind this project for Hitchcock was tell the story of Manny Ballestero from Manny's perspective. And he, he, when he was talking to reporters at the time about why he wanted to make the film, he, he noted that there had been other, you know, uh, innocent man films, but they typically didn't center the story, center the narrative around the innocent person uh, himself or herself. That instead, you know, you got movies like Call Northside 777, which kind of focuses on a reporter played by Jimmy Stewart trying to working to free the innocent uh, the, the 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 innocent man who's in prison, or um, another one he mentioned was Boomerang, sort of about mm. a prosecutor who who realizes that a man who's being set up to take the fall for a murder app is innocent. So Hitchcock very much wanted to tell the story primarily from Manny's perspective. And again, um, building empathy uh, by by you know casting Fonda sort of dovetailed with that objective. And the other thing that was I think fascinating about Han- Fonda for this role is I mean Fonda you know has a great deal of range, um, and that you know uh, in, in some of those earlier movies like Grapes of Wrath, you know you get decency, you get sort of. Uh, homespun eloquence, but you also get rage, you know, Mm. uh, willing defiance, anger. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He's, he, he shows he's sort of capable of, of violence when the time comes. But again, consistent with the idea that they wanted to be true to the facts of what happened here, Fonda really suppressed that element uh, and, 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 you know, it was true to Manny Ballesteros' real personality, which was this very rather unassuming, soft-spoken guy who, you know, uh, you know, throughout the film doesn't make you know, angry speeches about how he's innocent. Uh, and instead, consistent with reality, you just get the sense that, you know, this guy is like a, a train has run over him. Uh, and uh, he's just, just you know, living his day-to-day existence um, while he's under siege here through wrongful prosecution is, 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 you know, the most he can do. Interesting, those earlier films as well, there's always a sense, and I think this is true even today when we get an innocent man sort of film or... In, you know, it mis- miscarriage. That there's there's a, a degree of what we would call sort of victim blaming of like, you know, if only you hadn't done this, or if only you didn't right. drink so much, or if only you didn't, you know, you you know, you always have the the scene where the lawyer says, if you don't tell me the trick, why didn't you tell me this before? You right. know, and, right? And it's just like, wait a minute. Um, whereas with this, with Manny, you never really doubt his innocence for a second. There's no sense that he's uh, in the wrong man. I mean, that he's in some way complicit with his own downfall he's he is just as you say just been hit by a train that's right that's right you know the interesting thing in the way the narrative spins out of course is that even though as you say manny is completely innocent and 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 rose his wife certainly had nothing to do with him being falsely arrested rose uh in the story and in in real life became consumed with guilt herself that this was somehow her fault because she had been the one who had the dental problems and it was to try to address those problems that maybe went to the insurance office to get the loan and that's where he was misidentified. So you have kind of this uh, kind of ironic and, and sort of disturbing element of the story where, you know, these are truly innocent people, as you say, and yet Rose was beset with this irrational sense of guilt that led to an emotional breakdown. And that as, as well was kind of fond as key into the the role that he wanted to to do the film not so much because of Manny's innocence but because his his own wife had uh, recently, his estranged wife, um, mother of Peter and Jane Fonda, had recently committed suicide, had a breakdown, and uh, and it, so he saw an opportunity to sort of explore that. Uh, emotional um, trauma that he had just been through. That's right. He, he, when he was interviewed later about the film, he said that was one of the elements of Manny's story that he could really relate to, the tragedy that that uh, Rose went through and, and its connection to his um, uh, strange wife's death 
Francis, I think was her name. So that was certainly one of the elements that drew uh, Fonda to the project. And I think the other element, and I think this is probably one of the things that drew Fonda to a lot of the social justice films I mentioned, is there was this um, incident when he was only 14 and living in Omaha, where he had witnessed uh, the horrific lynching of a black man named Will Brown. The, the story is 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 a is a terrible tragedy where Brown was a man who had been falsely accused of the rape of a white woman. He was being held in the courthouse in Omaha. And, you know, the thousands of, of people uh, descended on the courthouse square, demanding that Brown be turned over for vigilante justice, essentially. And, and, and um, you know, when the police refused, they basically overcame the police they ran, got into the courthouse, they seized Brown, and they murdered him, and they lynched him, and they mutilated him. And Fonda would say that it was really the most horrific thing he had ever seen. And it's clear that that experience, what he witnessed that night, informed any number of uh, the roles that he would later uh, take on. And, and a number of the films, like The Oxbow Incident or Young Mr. Lincoln, or even this film really come down pretty hard on mob mentality. And, you know, this movie isn't, you know, when people think of this film, they don't think necessarily of mob mentality. But early in the film, there is a scene, the scene that takes place in the insurance office where Manny is first misidentified as the criminal really does put mob mentality on display in a pretty probing light because you can see that what happens is one of the the, the, the first uh, employee there who misidentifies Manny then kind of spreads that belief throughout the office. And you could see the employees sort of working each other into a bit of a of, of a frenzy. You know, there's there's a combination of, of fear and anxiety and a desire for revenge in that scene. And I think that both Fonda and Hitchcock were very preoccupied with this theme of mob justice. Hitchcock dealt with it a number of times in other films as well. And I think that even though it's in a somewhat more mundane context in an insurance office, it's really on display in the scene when Manny gets misidentified. Yeah, it's a kind of group thing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, he's already his uh, Hitchcock's sort of um, somewhat contemptuous attitude towards juries is, is based maybe on him thinking, God, you know, a by a jury of my peers. No, thank you. <laughs> I, my, my... That's exactly right. Oh, one of the other aspects that I, I think is really interesting about this film in terms of his uh, th general filmography is this feels to me probably Hitchcock's most spiritual film. You've got Manny's Catholicism and you've got you know a moment where he breaks down and he's really praying and, and that sort of comes at a very important moment in the film. I mean, this is informed by the real life uh, fact that we've already mentioned, uh, but it does feel like something that, that Hitchcock picks up, which isn't, again, we don't usually think of it as being in Hitchcock's wheelhouse, so to speak. That's right. And and that whole interpretation of the movie is, is one of the fascinating things that came to light in, in the research, because I think that's a, a reading that a number of scholars have taken of this film, that, you know, it's, it's, it's the most Catholic film and the scene where, you know, Manny is praying sort of gives way to the scene where the real culprit is captured. And, you know, the implication that some have read into that is that, you know, the capture of the real culprit was an answer to a prayer. And when you go back and look at the the archival records, again, there was a lot of correspondence exchanged between Hitchcock 
and the screenwriters while the movie was being made or while it was in its planning phases. And Hitchcock sort of anticipated this reading of the film. He he said in one of the comments about the, the screenplay's draft, uh, the draft screenplay for this scene, he said, um, we should clarify in the dialogue that Manny is not p- praying for deliverance mm-hmm. in the scene, that he's pr- praying for strength. And in fact, that's the dialogue was put into the character of, of Manny's mother, who's in that scene. Manny, Manny's mother is the one sort of who beseeches him to pray. But she says, pray for uh, pray for strength, uh, Manny. And Hitchcock, in, in the correspondence, specifically says he wanted that change because he doesn't want the, Manny's exoneration ultimately to be seen as the answer to a prayer. And yet that that that's really how it's been read. I think that that change that was made was just a little too subtle to, you know, forestall reading. But yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because it is fair to characterize it as kind of a uniquely religious moment, seemingly religious moment in the film. And and yet, you know, again, if we go back to one of Hitchcock's missions in making this film, he kept talking about how he wanted everything to be true to the record of what happened. When when the day that that the real culprit was caught, Manny went to see Rose and Manny asked Rose to pray for him and pray for him to be uh, exonerated. And, and that's in an interview that Manny gave the next day. So there was even within that kind of spiritual element you're talking about, there was this kind of seed of truth that Hitchcock found in the record. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting moment. And I think even the pay, pray for strength for pay for, you know, uh, I could see someone believing in a in a divine intervention saying, ah, well, even there, you would re- God is rewarding his devotion rather than a specific answering a specific request. Uh, what was the effect of this film on the debate and on the, the the process? I mean, you're talking about the Innocent Project not really coming into itself until the 1990s, and that this film's released in 1954, I think. 56. 56. Sorry, so 1956. That's a long stretch of time. Does does this in any way contribute to that movement? Yeah. Uh... The answer would be not really. Uh, mm. In fact, you know, the case, neither the case nor the film, I don't, were sort of appreciated. I don't think that the, the significance of either the case or the film were fully appreciated when when they, you know, came to light. If we start with the case itself, the narrative, again, that was uh, presented by the authorities when Manny was ultimately exonerated was very similar to those other cases. This was, I mean, look at these if you look at all, you know, I, I think I pulled like every article that was ever written about this case, thanks to newspapers.com and, you know, other sources. And time and again, they kept referring to Manny and the real couple, whose name was Charles Danielle, as doubles or twins, which was not the case when you look at the pictures side by side. I mean, there's sort of a passing resemblance, but the idea that these these men were, you know, identical is really unfounded. And yet that's how the case got reported. And that's how the prosecutors sort of explain this miscarriage of justice to the public. So the reality is that it was just seen as another aberration, you know, an unusual one in a million type of case that did not lead to any introspection or any reform at the time. And then Hitchcock's movie, I think this is an interesting case of how films can be looked at 
through the lens of sort of the values of their of their time. You know, um, Martin Scorsese has talked about how modern audiences can appreciate older films, you know, uninhibited by the values that prevailed at the time the film was made. Well, I think at the time this film came out, there was still a pretty healthy uh, amount of deference to the criminal justice system. There was a general mm. faith in inst- legal institutions and the police. And, and um, you know, so this movie didn't really land for the most part as a, as a critique of the criminal justice system, even though I think that critique is there. I think it's just that. Um, given the norms of the day, you know, the film wasn't really received in the way I think audiences react to it today. I think if you watch it today, in light of everything we know about the the, the number of wrongful convictions that have come to light, the systemic problems with its criminal justice system, you really see that, you know, this is a, a kind of a classic case of a rush to judgment, a case where, you know, precautions were not taken and where, uh, an innocent family was nearly destroyed in a situation that was really within the control of the criminal justice system, uh, as opposed to this idea that uh, this was a, a, an unbelievable, unfathomable coincidence that uh, led to an unavoidable tragedy. Well, I mean, you even use the point, the uh, part of a story of someone being arrested and going down to the station to, oh, if you're an innocent man, I mean, it's in the title of your book, you have nothing to fear. If you're innocent, you've right. nothing to fear. And um, and this guy is fortunate that the witness goes, no, it's not him, and he goes home, and he realizes, my God, there but for the grace of God, but, you know, we shouldn't be organizing legal systems on but for the grace of God. <laughs> you know, we should be organizing right. them on, you know, legitimate structures of safety and protocol. The relevance of it today feels incredibly timely, especially given how much we now know about police procedures being revealed by body cams and, and you know, mobile phone footage and stuff. And I thought it was really interesting as well. One of the characters, one of the case studies you place is, is that of, uh, of a guy who's black and he's uh, another case of misidentification and you make the point later on where you say manny's a family man he's a catholic he's white he's actually sort of a perfect poster boy for an innocent man gone wrong whereas if he was black then nobody would have looked twice at this case i mean i'm sorry i don't want to put words into your mouth but that, no no that... no that's right i mean there was a the case you allude to uh, a, a, a young man named Thomas Oliver, who was wrongfully yes. convicted of armed robbery and assault, you know, that was, you know, barely registered with the public and barely registered with the criminal justice system at the time, as contrasted with the exoneration of white defendants. I mean, if you compare the case I mentioned earlier, Bertram Campbell, I mean, he that case was on the front page of the New York Times and many other New York newspapers time and again over an extended period. Thomas Oliver, a young black man who was uh, served over a year in prison for a crime he did not commit, uh, that was relegated to a couple of paragraphs inside the paper. So, Mm. um, you know, I think it's absolutely correct to say that, um, you know, uh, on top of all these other uh, systemic problems that went unaddressed at the time with eyewitness over-reliance on eyewitness uh, testimony, um, procedures that were not uh, in place to protect the innocent. Then you have the issue of uh, disparate treatment and racism, um, and that posed that greater risk 
to to you know defendants like Tom Thomas Oliver. So and 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 again, uh, as you say, Hollywood certainly was much more likely to tell the story of Manny Balistrero for the reasons you mentioned, because you know you had sort of this idealized from a Hollywood perspective what they perceived to be this idealized protagonist. I was wondering, and it's sort of moving away a little bit from, from the book, where, as an attorney, as someone who works in the legal system, when you're watching films, um, do, you, do you spend quite a lot of time going, nah, 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 that, that, that would not happen? I mean, I guess that legal dramas are, are, are very much part of the daily diet of TV more than more than cinema, but still, we have lots of Matthew McConaughey, the Lincoln lawyer, and and, and others. Are there, are there times where where it sort of um, it clicks with you and you go, yes, that's exactly right? You know, for the most part, I have pretty low expectations when it comes mm. to how realistic a lot of these uh, uh, stories are. Um, I enjoy them. Um, I mean, I go back to, you know, when I was a kid uh, watching the Paul Newman film, The Verdict, over oh, and over. Sidney and- Lumet film, amazing film. I, I love that movie. I, I I can't. I lost track of how many times I must have seen that when I was younger. Which I just loved as a character story. I mean, I, look, I love the courtroom theatrics of it, but I don't really, for the most part, come to these films expecting realism. And that is, you know, if we you go back to the wrong man for a minute. I mean, that's one of the reasons I became fascinated with this film, which is that um, it does have a very unusual commitment to presenting a criminal defendant's experience in a realistic fashion. And it's it's very striking. And I think that it's one of the reasons it's it's so timeless. It's 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 kind of an interesting uh thing about this film. On the one hand, you it's kind of like a time capsule that you get to see what people like Manny were going through in the 1950s. It's also a wonderful time capsule of what New York looked like mm. because so much of the film was shot on location uh in Manhattan and Queens and 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 Brooklyn. And yet at the same time, because we know that these issues would plague the system for so many years after, it's still so timely and urgent. And, and you know, and I think also there's a lot of restraint involved in what Hitchcock was doing here. And, and I think that may contrast it with a lot of the legal uh, other legal themed films that Hollywood has made, you know. Most Hollywood films go for those, you know, moments of high courtroom drama, you know, the Perry Mason moments, the dramatic uh, cross-examination revelations, the powerful opening and closing statements, all the those those moments of high drama and, 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 and they make for good entertainment. But I think the reality is more of what this film presents. I mean, you can see in this film, it's not an extended courtroom sequence, but you can see that uh, uh, Frank O'Connor, who is Manny's lawyer, really straining to hold the attention of the jury. Mm. Um, It's sort of a a slog of a cross-examination, and you get a sense of that, even from just a very short snippet of it. Again, Hitchcock, I think, he once said that, you know, he, I think it may have been in connection with the parenting case, I'm not sure, but that he he found it difficult to film courtroom scenes in a in a super interesting way so he set out again to frame the courtroom exper- um scenes through Manny's perspective and again there's a focus not so much on the the lawyering and the testimony but on sort of Manny Manny's mindset and how Manny is sort of looking around the courtroom 
sort of horrified that, you know, people aren't paying attention. You know, his life is on the line here. And, you know, you see the prosecutor sharing a joke with his assistant. You even see um, Manny's sister kind of busily putting on lipstick and, and you know, and the brother-in-law isn't really paying attention. And Hitchcock said that, you know, he wanted to present that in a way that that uh, was true to the message that, you know, at this point, Manny really didn't have a friend in the world. Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. It always reminds me as well, Hitchcock coming from the same city as Dickens as well, that sort of feeling of, uh, you know, uh, of, of human life just not not concentrating on drama you know it's not right things are happening in the in the on the margins which are more interesting as far as the people there are concerned that's a it's a brilliant book it's a really interesting read it's a really fascinating true story and i think it's it, i'll tell you what it reminded me of as a book, the approach, it reminded me of what Glenn Frankel does with his uh, film books, where he, he, he uses the film as well as being intensely interested in the film, but as a way of sort of looking at a whole slice of society. And I, I, and, um, I, I hope that sounds like high praise because it's certainly meant to be because Glenn's one yeah. of the, the finest writers in the business, I think. Oh, I appreciate that. And I agree with you about what a great writer Glenn is. And 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 you're right on the money because when I was thinking about the structure of this book, it is a little unusual in that, you know, the book is sort of divided into the narrative nonfiction of, of Manny's story and then sort of the second half of the book focusing on the film. But I did take inspiration for sure from Glenn's books, in particular, the book he wrote about the searchers, which is really, you know, the very first half of the book is devoted to the true story of that, that inspired the film. So uh, I, I appreciate the comparison and, and share your admiration for Glenn's writing, which I think is wonderful. So do we have uh, are we are we, we going to look forward to some more books about the, the I mean, not, it doesn't have to be the criminal justice system and cinema, but but uh, more more cinema books from from you? Uh, I hope so. I This one took a long time. I, it took about five years. And, uh, you know, I was pretty much a full time lawyer, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, this really had to get done on the weekend. So to say that I was moving at a bit of a snail's pace at times is probably an understatement. Uh, but I, I I certainly would love to 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 do another project like this. Uh, I, I love the movies, but I also in particular love movies that shed light on the you know kind of the legal and cultural issues of their day and i think it's sort of a fascinating way to engage with history and to get, engage with social and political issues so right so we're basically down to the last question which is the question i ask everybody on the podcast you'll know from uh listening to the podcast what film book would you recommend uh, our listeners pick out look out for well i know you have a tradition of guests cheating this question a bit by picking more than one so I, I may continue that tradition if that's okay. That's fine. But I one of the best I've read is Matt Zoller Seitz's Oliver Stone book, which is called The Oliver Stone Experience. Ah. And what I love about that book is it kind of cuts across different types of film books. I mean, I, I think Matt is one of the great critics. And so you get in the book many of great insights about Stone's work. But at the same time, you know, much of the book consists of Matt's interviews with Stone, you know, like mm. a transcript of them. And so you kind of get a critical perspective on the Stone films and you get Stone's own perspective all at once. And in that sense, when I read that book, it very much for me evoked 
the Truffaut book about Hitchcock, you know, where the it's sort of an extended discussion between Hitchcock and Truffaut about Hitchcock's career. And, you know, there are a lot of very animated and revealing exchanges between Matt and um, and Stone. And then there are also other wonderful things in the book, the, the, the photos, the, um, uh, you know, um, storyboards, script excerpts. And so and, and then on top of that, it's just a beautiful book. It's 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 massive. But uh, mm. so I highly recommend that one. I guess my other pick is somewhat infused with nostalgia for me, because when I was growing up, uh, the great film critic Roger Ebert uh, was releasing on an annual basis these kind of compendiums or annual collections of the reviews he published, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Chicago Sun-Times. And I was sort of a budding cinephile at the time. And that those collections of, of reviews were just a great way to engage with the movies. And I don't know if those are the annual editions are still in print, but I do know that he at some point collected his reviews in, in multiple volumes called The Great Movies, like The Great Movies, Volume 1, Volume 2. And I just found Ebert's writing so accessible and, and crisp. Um, and again, as with as with Matt's writing, you get a lot of great insights in the film, but you also get a lot of beautiful writing as well. And I, I just learned a lot about movies and about writing from those Roger Ebert books. So I would encourage anyone um, who, who, who wants to kind of see what great criticism is to, to read those Roger Ebert reviews. Yeah, absolutely. I had the pleasure of meeting Chaz Ebert um, at Cannes this year, and it was great to, by one remove, have a, uh, uh, sit down and talk to someone about the great man himself, and that was, uh, that was a lovely experience. Yeah, I think we all have those critics. I mean, I think my first one was probably Dillis Powell, who was a Sunday Times critic, um, the uh, the London Sunday Times, and uh she she just was you know she was the one that i was reading every week every sunday and i would pay real attention to 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 her recommend i was going to go and see any film whatever i whatever film i could see anyway it was like case right. of distinguishing but i just wanted to to see how my opinion stood up against hers yeah and and the great critic the great critics like that it's a pleasure to read even if you don't agree with their perspective on a given film you can still get so much out of it um you know one of the things that somewhat one of the many disturbing things about, you know, the closure of a lot of American newspapers is, you know, just the the bench of, of, of regular film critics has been, you know, gradually diminishing. I mean, there were so many more film critics um, when, uh, when I was growing up as compared to now. Yeah, you used to have this cross-fertilization and these arguments going on and Andrew Saris here and, you know, Pauline Kale over there. And yeah, it, it does feel like that. Uh, but I, I also think, I mean, I I like that thing about disagreeing with someone. I I often disagree with Richard Brody, but I love his writing. I'll, I'll read him any day of the week. It, it, exactly right. I mean, you know, the great critics. I mean, another one that jumps out to me. I I love Manola Dargis in the New York Times, mm. and you know, the, the, her reviews, just like A. O. Scott, who who no longer is writing for the Times, but their reviews are just like these these essays, uh, beautifully written essays about the movie. Um, and uh, it's just a way of getting such an informed and expert perspective and seeing things in these movies that, you know, may not have dawned on you when you first saw them. All about enriching the culture. And and by, by golly, we needed the culture to be enriched. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, listen, Jason, it's been absolutely uh, great fun talking to you. And it's a wonderful book. I really recommend it. Um, I'll put a link in the show 
show notes um is from an independent publisher if i'm not mistaken so i'll put a link so that uh people can can go and get it and they should do and i'm looking forward to reading your next your next work hopefully it won't won't take so long for you Thanks so much for the kind words, John. I really appreciate it. And and I love your podcast. So thank you for, for doing this. So that was me and Jason and our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, it was amazing talking to a guy who has such a depth of knowledge about so many things that I don't know about, but I'm so interested in. So that was a great informative conversation. I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, all that's left for me is to thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the artwork, and to thank you, dear listener, for uh, for sticking with us. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.